0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. Boy, a lot is happening in the world of agriculture. Looking out at the commodity markets today, the grains are not trading with shyness. Ahead of the USDA report, we've got corn up seven down to one. We've got beans up 13, 12, 13 cents. Bean meal's up, bean oil's up, wheat's up, oh man yeah everything everything is up except rough rice however that could all change USDA reports their February supply and demand numbers today at 11 a.m central time Arlen Suderman will be joining us on the show tomorrow to run through those numbers and assess really what they mean for the markets today however we have a big discussion in segment two Dr Sheldon Jacobson from the University of Illinois is going to come on he's going to talk just about how much rising interest rates can impact our national debt. Stay tuned for that in segment three, we're talking with John Holzman. He's the host of the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. He's gonna give us an update on what is happening with Russia and Ukraine, and what's happening with Russia and China. Things are changing in the world of geopolitics. And finally, at the end of the show, we're gonna talk to Professor Jason Miller. He's a professor of supply chain management at Michigan State University. And he noticed that a lot of us, when reporting the jobs numbers released last week, did it wrong. And I was one of them. So I reached out to Dr. Miller. He's going to come on, teach us how to really understand how these job numbers are reported. So stick around for that. First and foremost, though, we're going to take a look at the weather, specifically the weather down in South America. Ed Valley of Empire Weather has been my go-to on what's happening down there in South America. Ed, give us an update. What's the weather looking like in Brazil?
2: Well, first of all, how you doing, Mike? It's been a minute.
0: I'm good, Ed. I'm good. I'm glad it's starting to warm up here across the uh, central part of the U.S. a little bit.
2: I hear you. Yeah. So, so, in in Brazil. It's also pretty warm. <laughs> it's uh, it, it it's been a, an interesting last few weeks down there. So, Brazil is almost a, a tale of two areas right now. So, the further north you go, we're talking Goias, Mato Grosso, those northern, really high-producing states. Those areas are doing quite well. We're we're seeing plenty of moisture, no extreme heat. We've had really adequate moisture through the entire season, but you go south, you go down into Mato Grosso do Sul, you go down into Paraná, you go down into Rio Grande do Sul. So the southern, we'll call it uh, half or so, of production, is starting to turn drier again, and uh, I think that is going to be the story here over the next few weeks. Dryness in southern Brazil, right down into Argentina.
0: Well, I want to take the focus back to Mato Grosso. I got an update from Argus Media last week. They said that by the 4th of February, 42% of the expected second crop safrina corn had been planted in Mato Grosso State. Ed, what does that tell you about this, uh, the potential for that corn crop there in Mato Grosso?
2: I, I think it's a good thing. I think we're much further ahead than we were last year. I think that's a, a two-pronged issue, I think, in a good way. I think last year we were dealing with a lot of dryness in the fall which led to kind of a delayed first crop planting, which ultimately led to a delay in the second crop planting. And then also, I think the weather this year, you know, last year we had areas that were too wet. We had some areas that were too dry. This year has been pretty uniform, and and that has allowed things to progress nicely here, uh, you know, in the early stages of that second crop corn.
0: Well, and so if we've got 42%, well, probably by now, I would imagine a little over half of the corn planted in Monte Grosso. It's going in the ground now. We've got the dry season, or excuse me, the, the rainy season continuing through the end of March. Does it look like there's going to be enough moisture there to get this corn across to the finish line?
2: It, it sure looks like it, Mike. And I, I think as we move forward, there's there's adequate moisture in the forecast through the remainder of February and even into the first half of March now. And you know, as we start getting deeper and deeper, like you mentioned there, into March and especially into April and May, things will start to subside a little bit. So it's important that this moisture does verify, and, and things are looking pretty good. So up up in that part of the world, honestly, it, it, I don't want to jinx it, but it, it certainly looks pretty darn good, and, and it can't really look, you know, much better considering the conditions we've had.
0: All right. But the concerns grow, it sounds like, as we move farther south. What are some of the states that you're really eyeing for some damage to their soybean crop, Ed?
2: And it, it, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's southern Madagrosa do Sol, Paraná, and then down into Rio Grande do Sol. I think those three areas are really, and, and along with adjacent areas like northeastern Argentina and Paraguay, I think those areas have been the driest thus far. And even over the next two weeks or so i think that's going to continue so that part of the world certainly in in those three states those are the really the big areas we're watching here uh, for the dryness over the next few weeks and we may see a a renewed opportunity for moisture as we head towards the turn of the month maybe into the beginning of of march however you know the next two weeks coupled with the warmth we're going to see certainly can't be ignored either
0: no no it certainly can't especially when you've got that heat coming in at this time of the season and as you get down in that that southern region of of brazil and northern parts of argentina how much corn goes in in the second season down there are they just as much a producer as Mato Grosso state for example
2: no definitely not there you know southern brazil certainly does have some even northeastern argentina does as well but the focus of that second crop corn is, is definitely further north so That's a good thing, right? So I I think moving forward, there is going to be some strain down there. But as long as we can continue to see that central Brazil area receive that moisture, I think the concern is at least limited for now. But again, I, I think we still have plenty of time to go before we reach the finish line.
0: And one of the concerns I've heard from a lot of folks, particularly if they're in the the soybean products industry, bean oil, bean meal, they've been watching the Paraná River there on the border between Argentina and Brazil, and I, they've been telling me that boats are only filling up about 30 percent, the river levels are so low. As you look out to the rest of this season, with La Nina being what it is, do you see enough moisture in that area to get that back up to the boat's ability to carry, you know, full load?
2: Well, you know, I think we're going to struggle here. If if the next two to three weeks is any indication, I think that's going to be tough to do. You know, as we get into March, there is at least some signal for some moisture, but from a, a perspective of evaporation, you think about the middle of the warm season in our neck of the woods, you know, you still need adequate moisture to even maintain the levels that we're at, right? So the fact we're going to be running below normal coupled with some of that warmth leads me to believe that might be hard to do at least over the next uh you know three or four weeks
0: all right ed back up in our part of the world here in the united states any snow expected over the next day or two for anybody
2: well a little bit you know this this time of the year as we know can be quite challenging but for this time of the year it's not too bad we got a little guy coming through here on thursday across parts of the eastern dakota parts of minnesota and that'll traverse the great lakes as we get into friday so a small system possible, along with some uh, snow showers behind it on Friday in the upper Midwest and northern plains. But, as we know, for this time of the year, I think we'll take it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's certainly not too bad. These temps, are they going to dip a little bit as that cold front moves through?
2: Oh, yeah. No, we're, we're going to dip down a little bit here this weekend and early next week. I do believe we'll start to moderate though next week, so a little spring fever, possible.
0: A little spring fever, time to clean that garage, get to some of that work you've been putting off Ed Valley of Empire Weather. Thanks for jumping on and talking to us today.
2: Thanks, Mike.
0: Folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we'll be talking to Professor Sheldon Jacobson at the University of Illinois. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA Agriculture
1: of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer Editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day to day business decisions. Their award winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather while also providing insights on crops cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day. To help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today.
3: Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, featuring high-yielding extend flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of max herbicide with vapor grip technology, elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System. The system. Of choice, Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state.
4: They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute.
3: Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ed Council.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping Farmers and Ranchers Informed, AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on this Wednesday, February 9th for AOA. You know, over the past several months, we have been talking quite a bit about the risks that are out there with interest rates. Obviously, this matters because in agriculture, we are large borrowers. We take on a lot of debt to turn the wheel on our operations, and rising interest rates definitely can have an impact on that. But as we look at who is going to be impacted the most from rising rates, well, farmers aren't the largest debt holder. Uncle Sam is. The United States is the largest holder of our debt. Rising interest rates are definitely going to have an impact on those payments. Professor Sheldon Jacobson, the founding professor of the engineering in the computer science department at the University of Illinois, joins me today. He's recently written an op-ed piece about this very topic. Dr. Jacobson, thanks for joining us today. Sheldon, uh, can we hear you? Do we have you on there? Yes, I'm here. Oh. Perfect. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it.
5: Well, thank you for the opportunity to share about a very important topic.
0: It it is a hugely important topic. Dr. Jacobson, we're looking out. uh, The Fed has said we might see a percentage points worth of increase in the Fed funds rate. Talk to us a little bit about how that number works its way through into the interest payments we pay on the national debt.
5: We are in a historically low interest rate period and at the same time we are in historically high uh, national debt and as a result of that the percentage of the national debt interest payments have been fairly constant for many years in the 10 to 12 percent range that is going to change and we are going to hit a fiscal tsunami where every federal program is going to be threatened because there just won't be money to pay for it we're talking about potentially the federal budget being 30% just of interest payments, which is absolutely surreal. And I'm astounded that our politicians and our political leaders are not paying attention to what is going to be coming because every federal program is going to be at risk in ways that we've never seen it before.
0: Well, and Dr. Jacobson, this is something I, I hear used to hear a lot more concerns about the national debt. We've got to get this paid down. This could be some some trouble as we go out to the future. Over the past couple of years, it seems as though we've completely quit discussing it. National debt now at $30 trillion. As rates start to move up, when will we start to feel that squeeze in interest payments for uh, for Uncle Sam?
5: We're going to start seeing it some point at the six to 18 month period after the interest rates rise. Remember, a lot of the debt is already locked into long term Treasury bills, so we will not see that impact right away. But as some of the short-term debt is starting to feel that pain and that higher interest payment, we're going to start to see that the, the budget is going to slowly start to absorb more of those payments. And it is going to be painful when programs are going to be threatened. And this can be programs for social services. It could be programs for the military. It could be the farm bill. It could be absolutely everything is going to be on the table because we will not be able to pay our debts.
0: As you've been assessing this scenario, what type of, I guess, how much in terms of dollar value could we see the interest payments rising here over the next you know, short-term time period?
5: Well, in the short term, like I said, it's going to go up very gradually. We're going to see payments on the order right now of maybe, you know, uh, five hundred. Uh, Billion dollars, you know, we have a federal budget, you know, in the in the five, six, seven trillion dollar level, but we're going to start to see that climbing to a trillion dollars, and when it gets up to that number, it's going to dominate the. Department of Defense budget. It's going to dominate every other budget. It almost already does right now. These numbers are surreal, and it's hard for people to get a grasp on it. Right now, the amount of interest that's being paid, if the five richest people in America, people like uh, Bezos and Warren Buffett, um, took all their wealth and just used it to pay the national debt interest for this year, it still would barely cover it. That, that, that's how most people can't even grasp how much money we're talking about now. We talk about millions and billions and trillions, but it becomes a number that is so large that the average person can't appreciate the situation that our country is approaching. And I hate to sound so gloom and doom about it, but the fact is this is symptomatic of the ongoing conflicts in our inability in Washington to be able to cooperate and compromise to be able to get effective bills in as opposed to just compromising and doing one extreme or the other and not really getting anything done effectively.
0: Yeah, no, that's the truth. When this is brought up, the payments on the national debt and what it could do to Congress's discretionary spending, the response I hear from folks who maybe aren't concerned about it is, well, we'll just borrow more. We'll just borrow more. We'll borrow to cover the payments. Is that? feasible? I mean, in the financial system we have today, Dr. Jacobson, is that a realistic option?
5: Well, the federal government is the only government uh, in the United States, the state governments don't have, which have a printing press. And you can certainly print money. But printing money has a price to be paid, and that is long-term inflationary pressures. Uh, Borrowing is fine as long as people are willing to lend it to you. But that doesn't mean the problem goes away. All you've done is delayed it and kicked it down the road to another generation. And all we're doing right now is guaranteeing a deterioration and erosion of our standard of living in this country for many, many generations. And we've already seen that happen, and it will continue to happen. At one time, we were you know, the world's world power, and now we have near peers who are, in fact, passing us. And do we want to assume that position, especially when some of these near peers own a tremendous amount of our debt, hence they indirectly control us?
0: That's an interesting point. What are the near peers that you're watching? Who are some of these folks that that you would benchmark the United States against?
5: Well, right now, of course, when you think of the military, it is China. They have a massive size and they own over a trillion dollars of our debt. Uh, And they may say, well, that's maybe around 3%, 4% of our debt. But the point is, by them owning that, they expect payments. And if we can't deliver those payments, if they they called and did not buy more Treasury bills, then the unfortunate situation is that we will be forced to make very difficult decisions that will be painful for every American.
0: I guess the question is... Is this already baked in? We've got $30 trillion. We've added three, four, $6 trillion in spending here over the past two years. Inflation is already in effect. Dr. Jacobson, is it too late to do anything about this?
5: Well, the old expression is the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Uh, it would have been nice to have dealt with this five, 10, 15, 20 years ago when it wasn't critical. But we have to deal with it at some point. And it's critical that people on both sides of the aisle in Washington start to talk to each other and learn the concept of compromise. Because if we don't do that, we are not going to go get any better. And this fiscal tsunami is going to strike. And it's going to strike so hard that people are going to feel the pain on a, literally on a daily and a weekly basis in ways that we can't even imagine right
0: now. And the bipartisan approach should be fairly understandable on this because both parties are going to see their priorities suffer if interest rate payments crowd out everything else in the budget. Isn't that right?
5: There's going to be no discretionary spending available. In fact, it's going to be negative discretionary spending. You're going to have to take from programs that are already solidified and literally take money from them. Everybody is at risk from the young middle-aged, old, every profession, farmers, you name it, everybody is going to be at risk in this case because you you can keep kicking the can down the road, but at some point, someone is going to call you. And if people aren't willing to keep giving us money, then that is the call date, and it will be a painful date, and nobody will expect it. And you'll see the stock market plummet by 15% in a day. You're going to see things that we haven't seen in such a long time that it will frighten us.
0: Boy, after two years of pandemic gyrations in the market with this potentially coming down the pipe, boy, that's exhausting to think about. Dr. Jacobson, as you've been raising alarm on this issue, have you heard from policymakers or legislators uh, positive responses? Do do they get the severity of this issue?
5: People don't wanna talk about it because it doesn't help them get elected. In other words, the only way to act responsibly with our federal debt is to be fiscally prudent, but that doesn't buy votes because people ultimately will have to have some pain. The question is do you want to have short term pain or long term pain? We need a little bit of short term pain to get to the point that we can solve this problem. For a politician to act responsibly, it almost guarantees they will not get reelected and lose their power. Why would a politician do that? They're not in it uh, for for anything more than retaining their power. So this is not a way to retain power to deal with the debt. And that's why we're in this situation today.
0: Well, I've got to say, Dr. Jacobson, you haven't left me feeling terribly uplifted, but I'm really glad to see this issue being raised. And thank you for taking the time to come on the show and to to raise our awareness of it as well. I appreciate it.
5: Thank you very much.
0: Folks, stick around when we return. We're going to talk to John Hulsman. Of course, one of the key parts of that federal budget is military spending. John will tell me if that military is going to be needed with the Ukraine and Russia situation. So stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up.
3: Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system. The system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state.
4: They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions.
1: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, ahead of the February WASDE report due out from USDA at 11 a.m., we see bullish momentum in the grain markets with soybeans leading us. Also, China bought another 8.8 million bushels of new crop soybeans this morning, according to USDA. The question is, how much old crop will they need to buy to cover their needs? For that, they're looking to today's USDA WASDE report, as well as tomorrow's CONAB report. Now, private production estimates in Brazil are as low as 125 million metric tons Whereas USDA dropped to 139 in January. Neither USDA nor CONAB are expected to go all the way to 125 in this report, but the scope of this month's adjustment will communicate something about their perceptions of South American production problems. U.S. Gulf loaded soybeans are competitive with Brazil bids in March and April and cheaper than Brazil starting in May, as farmers in Brazil hold tight on the belief that supplies are not there. So a lot to watch with this WASDE report coming out at 11 a.m. Still watching, of course, geopolitical concerns in the Black Sea region and inflation overall in the market trade. But today's WASDE will be the leader. Right now, March court up 8 at 6.40 and a quarter. March soybeans up 14, 15.83. March beef meal up $1.90 a ton at $4.56. March soybean oil up 80.6415. March Chicago wheat four higher 782 at 3 quarters. March Kansas City wheat up six and three quarters at 808. 08. March Spring Wheat up 4 and 3 quarters, 945 and a quarter. Lean hogs for February down 60, 89.72. April up 17, 103.97. March feeder cattle 22 higher 167.10. February live cattle up 15, 142.12. April up 52, 146.70. Crude oil up 23 cents a barrel, 89.59. The Dow Jones up 265 points. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
6: Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike
0: Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. We have been talking for the past several months about the risks inherent in the, the situation developing between Russia and the Ukraine. We've talked to our friend John Holtzman about it in the past. John is back with us today. Thanks for taking the time to join us today.
7: Always a pleasure to be with you, Mike.
0: John, I want to start off. Last time we had, John, it's been several weeks ago, you reckoned there was maybe a 60% chance that we would see bullets fly between Russia and the Ukraine. That situation is still here, a bit of a head-to-head battle. Do you think that risk of war has gone up or come down over the past two or three weeks?
7: I think it's about the same. The problem is that we have the Western allies going in different directions. We have Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, going and saying he's reached some sort of secret deal with Putin who then laughed and said, there is no such deal. We have Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor of Germany sitting next to Biden. And when Biden says if Russia invades, obviously the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline will be shut off. And he looked like he'd swallowed his tongue and said nothing. So we have German neutralism, French Gaulism and America in the middle. And the more confused the West is, the more likely Putin is to walk over the line. So I still give it 60%.
0: All right, now let's talk about those meetings there. Macron to to Putin, Germany and the US getting together. So what was it that Emmanuel Macron was trying to do with uh, with Putin there in Russia?
7: He was trying to get reelected. Macron is just starting the French presidential election cycle. They have two rounds of voting. The first round's in late spring in May and then in June. And Macron wants to be seen like all French leaders. De Gaulle started the Fifth Republic as a great and important world leader. And so he jets off as though he has anyone behind him and got a real dressing down from Putin's uh, chief foreign policy advisor who said, look, we wouldn't do a deal with you on your own anyway, because the only uh, institution we care about is NATO. And you are not the country that runs NATO. America is. And so chastened, Macron has gone home. But this, of course, divides the alliance. If we all look like we're all over the page, Putin sees division. And when there's division, of course, it's easier to decide to be aggressive.
0: So, John, you are based in Europe, so I imagine you've kind of, you're hearing more than we're hearing here on, on this side of the pond. What is the, the, the state of concern broadly in Europe right now, whether or not Russia might invade?
7: Well, there was a great new poll out by the European Council on Foreign Relations today that, that 1,000 people surveyed in all the big countries here. And I think it's right. It tracks what I'm hearing here in Milan and Italy, which is that most people think that over the next few months, Putin is indeed going to invade. And most people think absolutely nothing will happen as a result, except tensions will increase with Russia, but that the West will not mount a response. And frankly, I agree with them.
0: Do you think they'll actually shut the Nord Stream pipeline off? Germany has been looking for new sources of gas for some time. John, would would they actually do that?
7: Well, the problem is that and we see this now, the rest of us have been begging them to diversify their energy sources to include countries like the United States with shale to include Qatar and to include Norway to diversify that supply so they're not in the pocket of the Russians. And of course, what are they now? In the pocket of the Russians. And so this is a huge issue because frantically they're scrambling the rest of us so that if Putin does turn off the taps, things don't get very cold in Europe. Already energy prices in Europe for households are up by a factor of three or four. An immense bill is about to hit European taxpayers in the spring and so really the energy issue is the key way to look at the crisis into the medium run because if they don't diversify they will be neutralist no doubt about it
0: okay we had some other concerns i guess fresh concerns about the ukraine situation earlier this week when putin met with xi jinping and and russia and uh, china signed a number of agreements john what what all were they signing what sort of agreements are china and russia putting together
7: well they're not there yet in terms of an alliance i want to be clear but anybody who's ever played the second greatest game created a monopoly risk knows the world historical island is europe and asia american geopolitics is very simple you don't let anyone control europe who is an enemy and you don't let anyone control asia who's an enemy we're an island off this larger landmass and if we can keep those two areas divided the united states like the british empire before it is going to do just fine the danger is if these guys actually get it together in an ironclad alliance that is the one significant force that could challenge american pre- a preeminence in the next 20 25 years that and that alone and so anytime they move together our job should be to keep them apart they're not there yet the problem is that russia has what I call the Batman problem. Batman in this situation would be China. They're dominant. Russia would be Robin. Putin doesn't want great Russian nationalism to be Robin. So that's a problem. And the other problem is that when you look at Central Asia and Siberia, China wants to move into these areas, and Russia has been dominant in them. So they're not to a full alliance yet, but they're tilting toward one another in an anti-American position. And we should keep our eyes, eyes on this like a hawk.
0: Yeah. And John, as we're thinking about the economic consequences of Russia and China moving closer together, would they be able to serve, uh, form sort of their own trading union? I mean, Russia, of course, large wheat producer. They've got a lot of grains, particularly if they get some more from the Ukraine. And China obviously needs more. They need energy. Is there enough there that these two could sustain themselves if the international community pushes them out?
7: I mean, I think, I think there is, and it's something worth considering. It is still a hard sell because one of them has to be dominant and one of them doesn't. This was what happened in the Cold War. Mao didn't want to be robbed and did Khrushchev, and the alliance fell apart. And there's also, again, these geostrategic problems. But in terms of resources, it is a good fit and that China needs ever more foodstuffs and resources to, to maintain its first world economy, and Russia just needs economic help. It's important to say Russia's economy is just the size of the state of Texas. It's a declining economic power, desperate to try to reassert itself. So there is the basis to working there, but there are these other things keeping them apart and we should do everything we can to keep them as far apart as possible in the next 20 years
0: well you know the economic concerns are a good one I'm glad you raised that up the economy of Russia not awesome and in China we're seeing their property sector slow down their birth rates continue to decline over the next 20 to 25 years even if they were to to form some sort of an alliance the long-term trends don't look good for either of those two countries John is that an adequate assessment of their health
7: I agree with you, Mike. I mean, China, I think, is incredibly overrated. Because of the demography, they're going to get old before they get rich. The replacement rate is 2.1 for people. China's at 1.38. They're nowhere near the replacement rate. They're going to get old before they make the jump up the value chain. And Russia is a one-trick corrupt pony. Frankly, India, India, India. The United States ties to India, 1.3 billion people, soon to be the largest. They have catch-up growth for the next 25 years they're the youngest uh, major economy out there and that's where we should focus our attention they have rule of law they speak english and they're desperately going to be in need of our resources and so the more we do with india the better
0: I'm really glad you brought India up John I wasn't planning on discussing it but since you've raised it India is fascinating to me we recently announced USDA got American pork into India we're kind of starting to build those bridges let's put your gaze into your crystal ball for us a little bit over the next 20 or 25 years do you see India rising as fast as China did as they approached modernity or are they just culturally going to move towards a little more slowly
7: It'll be more slowly, but it'll still be, look, they're growing at 6%. I go to India a lot. I'm like you. I'm fascinated by it. And I've talked to the government officials in Delhi quite a lot. And when you go there, you say, look, if you really don't screw this up too badly, you will grow at 6%. And if you do well, you're going to grow at 8% for, per year for the next 20 years. I can't think of any other country in the world because of demography I can say this about. India speaks English, they have British rule of law, they want to do more with the United States. This is a no-brainer. We should walk through the door and cement a firm alliance with India. And both of us want to stop China from bullying the neighborhood. So India is the great no-brainer of the future, geoeconomically and geopolitically.
0: Well, even with a no-brainer, John, there are trade-offs. Are there any concerns in tying our, our future closer to India's?
7: I mean I don't I don't think so ultimately and the choices have to be made I mean India you know still going to have the problems it did yesterday even for that 6% growth it's too bureaucratic it's too government heavy it's too sclerotic but you know what 6% growth for 20 years will as it did in China will take care of a lot of these problems and India lines up with our other allies in the region, like Japan, like Australia, like New Zealand, like the ASEAN countries. And so this is a case where the economics and the geopolitics go together.
0: As you think about that southeast part of Asia, John, there's been a lot of concerns over Taiwan. Do you think China could make an aggressive move in the South China Sea?
7: I do. I think Admiral Davidson is right. The problem is that China is a peaking power and they know it. And when powers... at the top of where they're going to be and they can only see going stagnating or going downhill they become dangerous as as happened to the kaisers germany in 1914 imperial japan in the 1940s and indeed the soviet union even they they know they're going to get old before they get rich they can read the demography numbers they know they have to move up the value chain they know the united states and others are bouncing back from COVID. and so really the next five or six years over taiwan are the critical period i'm with the outgoing admiral of the Pacific Fleet Admiral Davidson, who said the maximum danger for Taiwan is the next five or six years. And yes, it's a major emotional issue for the Chinese. Part of their nationalism is to regain control of Taiwan. Ironically, they've never actually had control of Taiwan, but that's another story, Mike.
0: <laughs> that That is a very long story. I feel like we could fill a lot of episodes with the China-Taiwan story. John, you are the host of the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, looking at these geopolitical issues. Where can folks find that podcast?
7: Well, listen, thank you, Mike, for mentioning that. If you go to johnhalsman.substack.com, you can get my take on World of Views every single week, and I'd love you to join us.
0: Fantastic. Always appreciate the opportunity to pick your brain, John. Thanks for the update. We'll be talking to you soon as these, uh, these Tinderbox issues continue to flare up occasionally.
7: Thanks, Mike. I look forward to talking soon.
0: And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're gonna be talking to Jason Miller about how to better understand these jobs reports from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So stick around on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up.
6: 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk.
8: 145
6: over 92, and then I had a heart attack.
4: 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over.
3: This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel
7: its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment
3: plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you.
7: Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens.
6: Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration,
4: changes your entire life.
3: So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband
6: tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that.
3: Make a plan today to get your eyes checked.
7: Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers
5: the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com.
0: Oh nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates. Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange. Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen.
7: Check, check, and check.
0: Oh man, that is good under
3: the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammys. So. When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station.
0: Every Tuesday, we'll be Sitting Around the Table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
3: As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at
0: www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks so much for tuning in today, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, my brain is still reeling after talking to John. There's so much happening on the international stage in 2022. It is vital that we all keep our heads on a swivel. And a lot of that means making sure we understand what is being reported to us. And that is why I wanted to have our next guest on. Last week, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported the jobs data that we get from Uncle Sam. And it looked very strong if we're talking about it on a seasonally adjusted basis. Well, Professor Jason Miller, he's an associate professor at the Broad School of Business at Michigan State. He specializes in the supply chain. He published on LinkedIn a short story saying how that interpretation isn't the most accurate. So I wanted to get him on, set me straight, make sure all of us understand exactly how to look at these numbers. Professor Miller, thanks for joining us today.
8: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, let's talk about this. When this jobs number was reported last week, the big report was seasonally adjusted jobs in various fields. Now, that's not the perhaps most accurate way to get a picture of the labor situation. Tell us how to better understand these things.
8: Yeah, so the way I like to think about, you know, jobs numbers is what seasonal adjustments essentially doing is you have a model that the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that basically says, if there was no long-term trend in employment, how much would I expect employment to fluctuate this month relative to the prior month due simply to seasonality? And so what you then get is basically a seasonally adjusted gain um, can often occur even if we actually lose jobs on a not adjusted basis, but we don't lose as many jobs as we would expect. And so that happened, for example, in the parcel sector.
0: In the parcel sector. So this is couriers, mail carriers, any of that sort of, of business, right?
8: Yep. So, you know, your UPSs, your FedEx, your companies that, you know, deliver, um, you know, products for Amazon. You know, and just to give a sense, the seasonally adjusted number said we gained 21,000 jobs in the sector, which, which sounds great. But in reality, we actually lost 250,000 jobs. What happened was the model thought we'd lose 273,000. And so you have a seasonally adjusted gain, even though in reality, 250 season, 250,000 seasonal workers lost their jobs.
0: All right, so let me make sure I've got this correct. What we saw in January in parcel carriers was that 252,000 of them were were laid off or at least not working. And yet, when we reported it, we actually reported a net gain of 21,000 because the drop was not as severe as expected. Did, did I get that right?
8: Yep, you got that exactly correct.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that that doesn't seem like the best way to assess the uh, the economic health of a country since we're using so many assumptions in this figure. Jason, what is a better way to understand employment statistics? Does the government p- publish a number that we can get right on the face of things?
8: Well, so so the government does publish all of the raw data. So what they call the not seasonally adjusted data. And what I usually do as an economist is I look at both the seasonally adjusted number as well as that not adjusted number to really get a sense of what's, you know, going on. So typically what will happen is, you know, in the summertime, we add more jobs. And so what can tend to take place is that the seasonally adjusted number doesn't look as good as the not adjusted number. And so... What I always tell people is, you know, you have to recognize that seasonal adjustment tends to, you know, if anything, reward the months where we tend to lose jobs and it punishes the months where we tend to gain jobs.
0: That makes sense. So you get that overall smoothing effect throughout the year, though it's not the most accurate month to month. That makes sense, Jason. While we've got you on the line, you recently published another article looking at container shipments. Uh, We've talked a lot about the supply chain hiccups that have been uh, plaguing this country, well, the world for the past two years. Talk to us a little bit about just the volume of containers we put through the system in 2021.
8: Yeah, so the Census Bureau just released our December trade statistics. So we finally can look at 2021 annual and taking a look at essentially the tonnage of containerized imports, which is a good proxy for number of containers, we were up a staggering 18% from 2020, which is by far the largest gain that we've ever seen. And if folks want to understand why the you know, import supply chain is congested, we essentially baked about four to five years of inventory growth into one year.
0: And wow. So does it, Does it, that tell you over the next four to five years, things should shrink substantially since we've already got stuff on our side of the Pacific Ocean?
8: Yeah, so it's a great question. So basically, if you look at the trend line that existed from 2010 through 2018, so, you know, pre tariff, it was a, almost a perfect linear upward trend. So what I'm expecting is sort of a re- reversion back to that trend which would mean that in 2022, we would actually see imports decline about 5% from 2021. And then we would actually be in 2023 down maybe a percentage point or two from, from that number. And so essentially, I think that we will certainly see a, you know, reversion back to that long-term trend line, I think, for at least starting this year.
0: While we've got you, Dr. Miller, do you see the port congestions alleviating here over the next two to three months? Are we kind of coming on the backside of this massive surge in purchasing?
8: I think we are. I think I'm going to give it a little while longer to say, you know, give it about five or six months. Uh, The Danish company Maersk, which is the second largest uh, container line just said essentially in their earnings call that they expect a lot of port congestion will ease in the second half of the year. We are seeing the number of ships waiting at Los Angeles and Long Beach is now at 84 down from about 106 a few weeks ago. So there are some positive signs on that front.
0: Positive signs is good to hear. Thank you so much to Jason Miller, professor at the Broad College of Business at Michigan State University. Really appreciate you setting me straight, Jason.
8: Hey, thanks again
0: for having me on. You bet. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll break down the WASDE report with Arlen Suderman. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
4: Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves, If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.